There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening and welcome to the History of Germany podcast. I'm Travis Dow. Today, we'll step away from the battlefields, and before we get to the fall of the Roman Empire and Germans and Goths taking over, I want to look at what it would have been like to be in Germania before that. This episode will look at Germans during the Roman Empire before Christianity. Before Rome fell, Germans were already being converted to Christianity, so... Sort of like I did with the Celts, let's look at what Germanic life would have been like. This episode will look at their religion before Christianity. We'll start to see how Germans were Romanized, even the ones outside of the empire. And then next episode, I'll have Stephen Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast to guest co-host an episode, and we'll discuss the conversion of Germans to Christianity. It didn't all happen at once. Um, and there's a lot of great stories. In fact, it happened over centuries. And after that episode, I'll publish an episode I did with Der Budla, creator of The Secret Cabinet, which I translate from German. And Der Budla also hosts Angegraben, an archaeological podcast he does in German. And if this all sounds familiar, it's because I visited him before at the Luther House, where he works, and two History of Germany episodes came out of that visit, and even a History of Alchemy one. So he's been on the show before, like the Sky Disc of Nebra and Mar Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. So he's back, but this time to take a step back and talk about the podcasting landscapes in the U.S. and Germany. And, and we've noticed some really interesting um, kind of differences between, between podcasting landscapes since I do a show in English and German, and now I'm translating his show. So we both have, you know, two, two shows in two languages. Um, so it might be more interesting for podcasters, but I think it's, but I think there's still a lot there about podcasting for listeners, or I wouldn't post it. So I think it's really good. And our conversation is both in, in English and German. And if you're one of the listeners that is listening to this show to learn English or learn German or whatever, with that episode, I'd listen to the German episode if you can, because that's the version we did first. So it's just longer and we just said more unique things. And after I publish that, we'll get to the Germans living in the Roman Empire itself. I want to see um, what it meant to live in, like, Cologne or Augsburg or some of those uh, towns that were founded that are today in Germany but were founded by Romans. And then, of course, we'll get to the fall of Rome, ending this miniseries. Um, Goths might be their own miniseries. We'll, we'll have to see how that goes. I might, because Frank's will be, I don't know where, where I'll cut off the Rome miniseries, I guess is what I'm saying. But today, let's look at Germans living outside the empire for the most part. What did their religion look like? How did it change when they started having more and more contact with Romans? And what did it look like when the first Christian missionaries started to wander into Germanic lands? Because I kind of want to set the scene for the next episode. Um, so what, you know, what did these missionaries walk into, actually? What were they dealing with? And we are talking about a time span 
that's centuries here. So a Germanic settlement in 200 BC would be very different than one in 400 AD. In the good old 200 BC days, Germany looked a lot more like the Oregon Trail. Now I have to tell Germans what the Oregon Trail was, the whole video game in every classroom and all of that, but like farmstead. Like each family would have their own homestead and be perhaps a viewing distance from their neighbors, at least walking distance. Kansas. Germany was like Kansas. A farmstead would basically have fences, a few buildings like a farm today, wells, and farmsteads were also basically self-sufficient, so it'd be, you know, the, the core family living there. And we do have some regional specialization, like what crops concerning, you know, like concerning crops or cattle, some local differences, some got lucky with timber or peat or some iron or maybe live near the sea for salt. But all of those industries were secondary to farming. They were more like hobbies. The family might do these other things and even trade these materials, but it was, there wasn't a class of miners or a class of merchants, um, nothing like that. These were all just secondary activities to farming. And one thing to keep in mind is that we did talk about the same time period before when talking about the Celts. And this also includes some of modern southern Germany. Now Germans, the nor like in northern Germany and all the way up into Scandinavia, Denmark, Germans didn't have opida, like Julius Caesar described the Celts having. So on the other side of the Rhine, even in Belgium, in Switzerland, and further south, we have opida, those hilltop forts perhaps, or at least walled towns. In Germanic, in proper Germanic territory, some villages did exist, but weren't common. Germans didn't start living in villages until the second century AD or so. Basically, a collection of farmsteads would build their buildings a little closer together, not unlike a tiny German village today. And even outside the Roman Empire, the village of the late Roman period becomes more and more formalized. We now see a collection of these farmsteads. And one important thing to point out is that it's tough to really get an accurate picture of things like hierarchy or status through archaeology just of these farmsteads during this time, or these even these villages, and, you know, Germans didn't really write anything down. Well, at least not much, but, but we'll get to that. But the details here are tricky, so I'll, I'll try to be careful. Archaeologists have tried to make statements about elite dominance within these farms on the basis of, like, the size of a stable or something within these little towns or farmsteads. And, you know, because of bigger stable, you'd have more capacity for cattle and hence wealth. But this is really difficult. This is extremely circumstantial. Generally, it seems that farm within a village were kind of egalitarian. This does not mean that everyone within the village was equal, but that everyone lived in the same type of house. And not until we start to see the crumbling of Rome later in the migration period that the size differences between households within a village gets much more expression and the larger farmstead also has more, you know, those smaller outbuildings. They might even have a temple now and, you know, sort of a workshop for making stuff. And the first of these as an example, we have Gudme in Denmark around 200 AD, but by 400 AD, these kinds of places existed all over the place. And as for, again, for southern Germany, best look at the episode talking about the Celts, because they did have villages much earlier. Celts also started to differentiate and specialize in tasks earlier, like to have a blacksmith or miners 
etc. And even, you know, things like trade happens easier in villages. So with Celts and then later Germans, we see households specializing in one thing and perhaps not farming as much or even at all. So, you know, a family starts to become a mining family or, um, you know, they live by the sea and they start just fishing or, well, maybe that always happened, but uh, just getting salt, for instance. And there's another misconception here. Maybe just in the English-speaking world, I don't know. But part of the confusion is with the later migration period, where people moved all across Europe. But Germans were never nomadic. There are no traces of that whatsoever. All buildings were meant to be as permanent as they could be. They are slow migrations over time, and wars where people did get displaced, and the Romans got involved with all of those too. But we don't see Germans roaming the forests and pastures with cattle. Only cattle herders did that, and even they lived somewhere. They had a home base. If you've heard the misconception that Germans were nomadic at some point, it also might be because of propaganda in the world wars. So maybe... My German listeners don't have this misconception, I don't know. But in World War I and World War II, Germans were often referred to as Huns, usually alongside stories of bayoneting babies or some horrible atrocity. But Germans are not Huns. Goths were not Huns. Huns were very nomadic and from far Eastern Europe or even Western Asia, not unlike the Mongols centuries later. In fact, the Huns invaded Gothic lands somewhere around 370 AD. Centuries after, Germans were already living in farmsteads and right around the time they really started to live in villages. So no relation. That was just World War propaganda. We'll get to the Goths in a few episodes. They also weren't Huns. And it was the Huns that really pushed Goths, and therefore all Germans, in a chain reaction that would crumble the Roman Empire, but that's in a few episodes. So my point is, until the migration period, no nomadism. Now, buildings and fields did shift as part of basically land management, but this was just usually local. Okay, so what were their beliefs like? Let's take one last snapshot before Christianity. German paganism wasn't a single religion, but a net of different beliefs and rituals and gods, not unlike Celts, when I talked about them and, and their religious beliefs. We're talking about a snapshot of a really big time frame, actually. So Germanic paganism ended with some tribes in the 4th century, but for others it held on until much later, in fact, some of our best sources are more Norse rather than Germanic because the best documented version of any sort of Germanic Norse paganism is from the 10th and 11th century Norse religion. And some information can be found from Anglo-Saxon and some from continental Germanic sources. And right towards the end of Germanic paganism, we do see the very first of the earliest writings of, of other Germanic peoples and then, of course, we have our Roman sources. And the information can be supplemented with archaeological finds and remnants of pre-Christian beliefs in much later folklore, which is also really interesting. So to put this religious system into context, you might have heard of Odin and Thor, right? Well, the Germanic names were Wodan and Donar. Donner, like Donna, means thunder in German. Like Donnerstag is Thursday, Thursday, Donnerstag 
Get it? Okay. So way back when the Celtic Latin culture was still around is when Caesar gave us our earliest source drawing differences between Celts and Germans. And we talked about Caesar in this before. Quote, the Germans differ much from these usages, for they have neither druids to preside over sacred offices, nor do they pay great regard to sacrifices. Tacitus begs to differ. They rank in the number of the gods, those alone whom they behold, and by whose instrumentality they are obviously benefited, namely the sun, fire, and the moon. They have not heard of other deities, even by report. But this doesn't jive with any other sources, so sorry I even brought it up. Now, Tacitus has a much more detailed description of Germanic religion in Tacitus's Germania, dating to the first century. As I've said before, Tacitus describes both animal and human sacrifice. As all, as all, I've also said before that I wouldn't trust Tacitus as far as I could throw him, but he identifies the chief Germanic god with the Roman Mercury, who's also the main god of alchemy, by the way, who on certain days receives human sacrifices, while gods identified by Tacitus with Hercules and Mars receive animal sacrifice. And of course, we have the tale of the mighty Swabians, who make sacrifices allegedly of captured Roman soldiers to a goddess who is identified by Tacitus with Nerthos, or Nertus. And Nertus was revered by some tribes at least, probably not all. Nertus is believed to directly interpose inhuman affairs, and her sanctuary is on an island, specifically in a little grove or forest called Castum. And a chariot, and again, chariots are really important in Celtic mythology, like I've said before, but a chariot covered with a curtain is dedicated to the goddess, and only the high priest may touch it. The priest is capable of seeing the goddess enter the chariot. And by the way, this cow-drawn carriage moseys then through the country, and every place she stops, a feast is held. And during the travel of the goddess, the Germanic tribes cease all hostilities and do not lay their hands upon arms. When the priest declares that the goddess is tired of conversation with mortals, the chariot returns and is washed together with the curtains in a secret lake. The goddess is also washed, and the slaves who administer this purification are afterward thrown into the lake. So, as with Celts, Germans also worshipped in sort of natural places, rather than like temples and churches, that kind of thing. And again, according to Tacitus, the Germanic tribes think of temples as unsuitable habitations for gods, and they do not represent them as idols in human shape. Instead of temples, they consecrate woods, like forested areas or groves, to individual gods, very much like the Celts. Slavs did the same with, like, cliffs. Cliffs were holy. So just, yeah, natural aspects of the environment would become a shrine. And what was also very popular was augury, or basically divination in general. But augury is divination through the observance of the flight of birds. And they would do other things. <laughs> they got pretty creative, but they would cut twigs into pieces and mark them, then toss them onto a white cloth and then interpret the results, you know, consult, read the lots for consultation, basically. And horses were also important. We mentioned before that uh, one of the highest Celtic gods was the horse god, which the Romans even took over. And this was the same for Germans. Horses, um, so they, they nourished, so they had these, these sacred horses, basically, that were nourished by the community. 
and were kept in these sacred groves, forests. All, they all had to be milk white and they didn't do any tasks. Like they were, no, they were not employed in any earthly labor, let's say. These would be yoked onto a holy chariot and accompanied by the priest and the king, basically the, the chief of the community, not really a king. And the horses would both carefully observe his actions and neigh. This neighing would be red. Both the king and the chief would be carefully watching the horses to see any signs. And they had another method of divination. If they were ever at war and they could get a captive from the enemy, they could engage in one-on-one -on -one combat with the captive, just one of their own soldiers and the captive, and each armed after the manner of their own tribe, and the victor of this one-on-one -on -one battle would decide something, the, the matter of the whole war. But remember, kids, don't trust Tacitus. Again, he was probably trying to show the virtue of Rome while showing the barbarity of Germanic tribes, like the noble savage. We've said that before. So let's talk about runes. Because runes were also a form used as a form of divination, at least at first. And a millennia later, we might see runes as um, actually being an alphabet with a spoken or, you know, a written language and, and poetry and, and works from this. But in this is centuries later and much more with the Norse. Germans did have runes, but it was much more along the line of divination, which is why I'm bringing it up now. Because the name rune itself means like something secret, something hidden, kind of like, you know, it's just something esoteric. And in fact, it would take one of these elite class, like a priest or something, to be able to read the runes. In Proto-Norse, we do see runes used as a language, like let's say 6th century. But, but mostly it's, it's on things like rune stones, markers, wards, you know, kind of like a protection spell. But, but definitely there's always a belief that it has some magic ability. Like certain charm words, like alu or auya, laukar, I don't know. I don't know how to pronounce all of them, but some of them would be used as charms written down in runes carved into stone or wood. These do appear in the migration period, but still as some sort of charm. And the meaning isn't entirely clear because there's no writing, you know, describing these. We don't, we don't have a user guide for these. So it's, it's tough to really say exactly how they were used or what they're for. Some of Tacitus's writing in Germania may or may not refer to runes. It's just not clear when he describes their divination. Like if, if he's saying signs, chosen in groups of three, and cut from a nut-bearing tree, is that like runes or not? Or is that some other sign? So it's, it's, not, it's not sure. And it's also been said that even though it was used for magic all the time, it's just because the priests were also the only ones that knew runes. So it might be that it wasn't that the, the language, the, the alphabet itself wasn't seen as mystic, any more mystic than Latin or Greek. Um, but it was just used for, you know, like for magical beliefs, like for protection charms or casting lots, that kind of thing. And there has been some work done on uh, figuring out if there is really a separate Gothic runes or if it's just kind of this, the same thing. But the thing with the Goths were, was is that if they did ever use runes, then immediately afterwards they definitely started using the Gothic alphabet. But there could still be some connections. Like even the, the letters of the Gothic alphabet sometimes were related, like obviously related, to the names of the Futhark, the, the, the runish alphabet. But again, it's hard to say whether the Goths 
had those words themselves or borrowed them. But the Encyclopedia Britannica even suggests that the original development of the runes may have been due to the Goths. So uh, I don't know. And another thing that's come up over and over is sacrifice. Did Germanic tribes do human or animal sacrifice? And it is attested by archaeological evidence and medieval sources. And specifically, rituals tied to natural features are found in both medieval sources and in Nordic folklore. A ritual chariot, like I said, um, as described by Tacitus, was excavated. I, I talked about that in the Celtic episode also. And then also what's interesting is that um, along with, you know, reading birds' flights or watching the movements of horses is that sources from medieval times all the way until the 19th century point to divination by making predictions or finding the will of the gods from basically random phenomena, like natural events, like the flight patterns of birds. But this is kind of a tradition among Germanic cultures. Like, like even to this day, all the New Year's Eve traditions, for example, like dropping lead into water and looking up the pattern, cutting an apple in half and looking at, you know, if, it's, if the inside is star-shaped. Unfortunately, I guess the, the main point to say here is that much more was lost um, just because they didn't write things down over time than we know today. How to interpret all these things, how to um, know exactly what runes meant to them and throughout time, because it, it, the thing is that it, it all changed very quick within decades. So that's another thing, is that it, if runes had one significance here, it might have been you know used as a writing sy system before that or after that, it's just hard to say. And there's huge arguments over whether the writing system came from Etruscan or a different Italic language or Latin itself or um, even something else. It probably wasn't uh, developed, developed independently. But in any case, in Tacitus' in day, Germans discerned divinity of prophecy in women, and a virgin prophetess such as Veleda were honored as true and living goddesses. And also, there was an archaeological find in 2012 in Denmark, which dates back to just around 2,000 years ago, which is on the Alken Enge wetlands in East Jutland. And basically, after a, after a clash, a battle, which was it happened just right around 0 AD, right around the birth of Christ, they found tons of, like, bundles of bones, and the bones were, were marked with, you know, cuts and scrapes. Some of the, the skulls were crushed, and they can tell that um, a lot of this damage was done six months after the battle. So the, the people had laid around the battlefield for six months, and then they came back and cleaned the bones, crushed skulls, uh, you know, did things with, with the casualties. And basically, all the flesh was cleaned from the bones, and the bones were then sorted and brutally desecrated before being cast into the lake. They were mixed in with the remains of slaughtered animals and clay pots that probably contained food sacrifices. And, and you know, basically it all points to a religious act. So the grove, the lake, you know, might have been a, a sacred site. Just before the migration period and during the migration period and then sometimes after the migration period, Germans did come in, con in contact with Christianity and Mediterranean culture. So, I mean, there, there was a centuries gap between the first conversion and the last conversion of Germans. But in Jordanese Getica, which is a 6th century account of the Goths, 
and this is already writing 150 years after the Goths were Christianized. But according to Getica, before they were Christians, the chief god of the Goths was Mars. And the Goths believed that Mars was actually born among them. Quote, now Mars has always been worshipped by the Goths with cruel rites, and captives were slain as his victims. They thought that he who is the lord of war ought to be appeased by the shedding of human blood. To him they devoted the first share of the spoil, and in his honor arms stripped from the foe were suspended from trees. And they had more than all other races a deep spirit of religion, since the worship of this god seemed to be really bestowed upon their ancestor. That's in Getica. And St. Columbanus in the 6th century encountered a beer sacrifice to Vodan in Bregenz. In the 8th century, the Germanic Saxons venerated an Irminsul. And you can also look up Donar's Oak, which is it's all kind of a famous story. We'll, we'll talk about that in future episodes. Like, you know, it's famous because like Charlemagne's supposed to have destroyed the Saxon Irminsul in 772. And there's one real pre-Christian testimony in the German language, and that's the Old High German Merseburg incantations, and that speaks of a of a Sintgunt, who is the sister of the sun maiden Sunna, like Sol, sun, and she's not really known in Nordic mythology. And if she refers to the moon, then she's different than the Scandinavian Mani, who is male. But as we'll talk about next time, the Goths and Vandals were converted to Arianism, that's like Arian Christianity, uh, in the 4th century. And that's kind of right around the same time of adoption by Christianity by the Roman Empire itself. So we'll, we'll talk about that in the next episode with Stephen Guerra from the History of the Papacy podcast. But because of their early conversion to Christianity, little is known about the particulars of the religion um, before. And... Because we don't know so much about the Goths, it's like we, then it's hard to figure out what's you know proto-Germanic and what's from later developments in in North and West Germanic. So you know having like Goths were just kind of converted a little bit too early, I would say. They they learned how to write the same time that they became Christians, which is unfortunate because uh, we would know a lot more about uh, Germanic culture and religion and whole as a whole if we could get the Gothic version. We know a lot more about Saxons and Franks and even Lombards, etc., because they were all converted a little bit afterwards. Well, we know a little bit more about them. But in any case, the Franks, Lombards, Alemanni, Anglo-Saxons, Continental Saxons, I guess you could call them, Frisians, they were all Christianized between the 6th and 10th century. But by the 10th century, only the Scandinavians and the Finnish tribes really remained pagan. But we can obviously get uh, some glimpses from Germanic uh, paganism through looking at these later sources. And I wanted to separate all of these out because, again, I, I, so we have much better sources for Nordic religions. Um, so, but be careful with, with making parallels with Germanic religions. I hope I've kind of made that clear. There, there, there are similarities. There are patterns. If you go far enough back, there's clearly a, you know, Nordic, uh, Germanic, proto pagan religion, um, of which Nordic religion and Germanic paganism were branches. Uh, you know, they were cousins. So there's there's clearly some connections there, but they're not the same thing. They're not identical, they, you know, so just keep that in mind. But we do have sources, like written sources from Iceland during from 1150 to 1400, 
So by looking at the Viking Age paganism of Nordic tribes, we might be able to glean something from Germanic paganism. So here we go. Now, in, in the Viking Age, sacrifices were known as blot, if I pronounce that right. Seasonal s- celebrations were gifts were offered to appropriate gods, and attempts were made to predict the coming season. And similar events were sometimes arranged in times of like crisis, um, you know, for much the same reason. And sometimes the subjects of a lord who converted to Christianity refused to follow his lead. This happened to the Swedish kings of Olaf of Sweden, Anungardske, and Ingold I, and would sometimes force the lord to rescind his conversion, like Hakon the Good. And in France, King Louis d'Utrem crushed a revolt by the Normans led by a certain Tormod, or Tourmod, a renegade Christian who sought to make a pagan of the young Duke Richard of Normandy. And then again in, folk- in folklore and legend, we can kind of get some, some clues about um, beliefs and religion before Christianity. And even just like in simple fairy tales, like take the Brothers Grimm. Um, but, the, you know, several other customs like Walpurgisnacht and Holda, Berchta, Weyland, Krampus, Lorelei, Nix. And even some of the, you know, medieval literature, which was much closer to the era, their, their fairy tales and sagas would have been um, different than our own urban legends, let's say, of modern day. And it also would have been much closer to the time of paganism, uh, you know, like the Nibelungs, like the Nibelungslied. So like in the Nibelungslied, you might see some information from, you know, some, some influence from free, pre-Christianity. And the closest literary source in English might be Beowulf which, you know, might be as early as the 8th century and therefore within living memory of Anglo-Saxon paganism. I mean, that's how close that might have been. And then there's also, you can also get a glimpse of like rural folk traditions that have either been mildly superficially Christianized or lightly modified, including surviving laws and legislature like the alt thing, the, you know, Anglo-Saxon law, the gragas, and also calendar dates and, you know, customary folk tales, um, and, you know, symbolism found in folk art. And I'd also recommend seeing, or listening to, rather, the British History Podcast. They did a great deal of information has been unearthed by recent archaeology, including the Anglo-Saxon Sutton Who Royal Funerary Site in East Anglia. And Jamie Jeffers has done a great job of, you know, he's interviewed some of the people that are involved with some of the archaeology there. And we actually have a lot better information about Anglo-Saxons than we do about Saxons from the same time period. Um, and Jamie does a pretty good job, actually a, a really outstanding job of covering that time period. Um, so definitely go go take a look, you know, listen to He has several episodes covering the Anglo-Saxons and even Sutton Who and several other archaeological sites. And unfortunately, um, I, again, a lot has been lost from, you know, pagan massacres, the kind of holy wars from, you know, the early centuries AD that happened. And, and even much later, there were, you know, even crusades. Uh, the Teutonic Knights went off and, and crusaded against Baltic pagans, uh, you know, a, a millennium later. But when when the Frankish Emperor Charlemagne, uh, for instance, collected, a, had, a, had a huge collection of Germanic songs, but his successor, Louis the Pious then had them all destroyed, you know, as the name might suggest. So that's kind of unfortunate. But let's take a look at their pantheon. Let's see what we can, because because the the north the north north religion we can make a lot of comparisons there. And the German pantheon itself is known as the 
Ansiewicz, if I pronounce that in any way right. And we have Taivat, who is the god of war. I'm not sure how to pronounce these, really, if it's like German or not. But but Taiwaz, Taivat, who's basically like the Germanic Mars. And in Norse, he'd be like Tyr. And in Old English, he was Tiu or Tiv. I don't know. Tiv, maybe. And Old High German, Ziu. And so Indo-European, you're to get Deus and then Zeus and so on. And Vodanas, which is Odin, Vodan, Vodan in German, uh, basically the German Mercury, the lord of, you know, inspiration and poetry and that kind of thing, but a lot, of, but also much other. And then his wife, Frigg in Norse, and maybe in, in old Germanic, it might have been like Frio, something like that. And then, of course, there's the Germanic Jupiter, you know, Thor, Donar, and then Thunar, Thunor in Old English. And then the heavenly bodies might have been deified, kind of like Sovilo, the sun, or Menon, the moon. Even perhaps, you know, there might have been a god for, an e for the evening star and, and, other, and other things. Again, that's just too bad we don't know that. We don't know more about, more about that. And then the interesting, another interesting idea is that the, the effigies. So Tacit had noticed that, noted that uh, Germans took effigies into battles, like effigies of God, but they were not human in appearance, so they were just some, you know, symbolic. And there were some effigies found that were like phallic in nature, for instance. Uh, one was recovered in a bog, which I can't pronounce, in Broden, Brodenbjerg in Denmark. So some of them did have this. Uh, you know, like wooden effigies of something. Um, but others might have actually, there, there's been some more human-like uh, ones found. And with the Celt, I talked a lot about, you know, burial goods and what was found through archaeology and that kind of thing. And in the Germans' case, um, one thing that was, that was found in graves were that also slaves were killed alongside their masters at death, apparently. And such cases have been found in Anglo-Saxon England and were also recorded in the 10th century of Ibn Fadlan, who witnessed a ship burial among the, the Rus tribe, right, like the, the Russians, um, in which a willing female slave who had belonged to the deceased was treated like royalty. And before she was killed, she, was, uh, she got very drunk and was allowed to have sex with whoever she chose before she was simultaneously strangled and stabbed to death and then burned upon her master's pyre. And there was no really common, like I said, there was no common religion. There was probably no common rituals or rites or festivals across the Germanic world. But there were some kind of patterns that probably had, you know, some festivals had similar functions and structure where people got together and would celebrate, you know, some cel public celebration of the divine and whatever they were doing. But the point is that the community would get together and do this because that is to this day seen everywhere throughout Central Europe and it and it comes and it goes back to that time. And Tacitus writes that Germans celebrated three seasons, basically spring, summer, and winter, while a thousand years later an Icelandic source said that they only divided the year into summer and winter. So like, you know, two big, at least two big uh, festivals for that for the seasons at, at a minimum. And obviously when something is lost for so long, then part of it gets discovered and an interest in ancient Germanic traditions started to kind of creep back in the 16th century. And there was a huge Viking revival in the 19th century as part of this Romanticism uh, movement. And uh, th this brought Germanic traditions, you know, right back along with it. For example, see Wagner, uh, basically anything he ever did. 
and German Germanic neo-paganism in the sense of a new religious movement was kind of influenced by romanticism uh, at the in you know in the same time in the 19th century when you know a bunch of things have their roots let's say um, but but in the earliest 20th century and interestingly before World War one you do start to see an interest in um, a sort of Germanic neo-paganism but that again that interest in Germanic neo-paganism in Germany kind of disappeared again after the, the end of World War two. Uh, because the, the Nazis twisted it like they twisted everything. In Iceland, you know, and in North America, ever since the 70s, there is this revival, and it's been going strong, it's going stronger all the time, of, like, um, Norse religions and, you know, by by extension, Germanic paganism. And what also might be interesting is some of the really traditional-sounding German names are actually so traditional that they might even have... Um, they might go all the way back to uh, pagan times, like names like Alfred, which would be like the Elf Council, or a Theophoric name like Ingrid or Torsten or Oswald, all have traces of, of a divinity of, you know, some divine being in them. And of course, a lot of place names have are still like that. But of course, like I mentioned, like Donas Talk, Thursday, so even the days of the week, now they're based on the Roman scheme, because apparently before the second century, you know, Germans did not have the concept of a seventh day week, but the Latin names were translated into the early Germanic still before Christianization. So they kind of got locked in at that time, in case you ever wondered why we say Thursday, Thursday. So it comes from the second century when Germans imported the week. So next time we'll look at the end of paganism and the conversion to Christianity, like I said, and then we'll take a look at the crumbling of Rome and some more battles and the birth of all kinds of peoples like the Alemanni and Franks and the end of the Goths, and we'll, we'll, we're going down that road now. And then probably the, the next big miniseries will probably be the Franks, I believe. Uh, but yeah, that's <laughs> we'll get there. And don't forget, if you like the history of Germany, you might really enjoy the Bohemian podcast, which is stories that often overlap with German history on really interesting topics. So go take a look at that at podcastnik.com or bohemian.com. And thank you very much for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 